this is Gregory of Nyssa, whom Fagerberg also cited, that we will be making infinite progress in our knowledge of God, precisely because we are creatures. You know, he describes heaven as this sort of magnificent fullness that has to keep getting fuller and fuller and will never stop getting fuller. That's a creature deified. Welcome back to Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. I'm here with Brother Israel. Hey, Brother. Nelson, hello, and hello, everybody. Well, I say here, here over the airwaves, but we're actually pretty far away from each other. I'm in Columbus, Ohio, enjoying a little bit of vacation time with my family. And Brother, where are you? I am here at the Abbey, uh, St. Benedict, Oregon, having just uh, completed our community retreat, a week-long community retreat. How was it? It was great. The retreat master is an alumnus of ours, Father Joseph Panessa, priest of the Diocese of Great Falls, Billings. And yeah, what a learned man, very prayerful man. And he guided us through a retreat on the divine names. So the, the divine name of God in the Old Testament and the holy name of Jesus as well. Very, very beautiful. Well, before we bring you, Abba Jeremy, and today's episode, we just want to share a couple of things with you guys. But if you don't care to know what they are, and you want to skip ahead to Abba Jeremy, we don't blame you. Just jump ahead to minute six or so. Well, brother, what are the announcements we want to make? One is a clarification. Just We will continue to both record episodes and to release them throughout the summer and into this following academic year. I'd made a comment during our last episode that we were, you know, breaking, breaking out for the year and that we'd all be going our separate ways for the next year. And we did receive a concerned email about, you know, encouraging us to keep recording, that this was something that was being well received. So we just want to uh, make that clarification. We will continue to record. We will continue to release episodes as well. And hopefully the audio quality will work out okay. So we're recording this intro over long distance and we plan on recording full episodes full conversations with abba jeremy over the intro webs as well so uh please pray to saint joseph that technology serves us and another piece of news is that we're rolling out a newsletter the first one is going out today with the release of this podcast of this episode and we plan on releasing them or we plan on sending out the newsletters once a week on each Monday. So the Mondays when a new episode goes up and it would just say, it would just be saying, Hey, here's the new episode. It was just released. Here's how you can listen to it. And then on the off weeks, we'll give a little review of the previous episode and a little preview of the future one, maybe any comments and maybe we'll include some questions here and there to, um, to keep the conversation going and to facilitate the experience for you guys. So if that's something you're interested in, just go on our website, theologyatmtangel.com, theologyatmountangel.com. And there should be a box for you to sign up, but you just put in your email address. And um, as far as spam is concerned, if somebody offers us a really large sum of money, then we may sell your information. Isn't that right, brother? (laughs) You know, the, the larger the donation, the more attractive the possibility, of course. 
but that's pretty unlikely. So we probably yeah. will not be selling at the, your information at the rate we're going. Yeah. yeah. We so, have to uh, give freely. So we won't be selling your information. We will not be selling your information. We'll just, and we'll just, just give it out for free. We'll just send you an, one email a week <laughs> and no more than that. That is a promise. We yes. promise. And you can unsubscribe at any time. Speaking of continuing the conversation through these newsletters, um, the episode you're about to hear is itself a continuation of a conversation that we began with episode five. So make sure you run over and listen to episode five. If you haven't, that way episode six will make a little bit more sense. So Abbott Jeremy responded to Dr. Fagerberg's symposium to his lecture. And then he sat down with us and then we responded, reacted to Abbott Jeremy's own response and reaction. So that's what we're introducing now. That's what you'll get to hear in a couple of minutes. And one thing to, to know is that it's it's a continuation of that episode of episode five, but really it's a continuation of a lot of the discussions we've already been having, the centrality of uh, the liturgy for how we do theology and really what's at the heart of the liturgy when we talk about the liturgy. So those are some of the uh, points to look out for in, in this episode. Okay, so the liturgy is the Trinitarian perichoresis canonically extended to invite a synergistic ascent to deification. So, deification. Father Abbott, what is that? Um, it's a word used more often uh, in the Greek tradition uh, than in ours, but uh, we have the same thought in the Latin tradition as well. And it means being made... God, literally, that's what it—that's it, what it means, and it—it—it it, it, it describes the extent to which our salvation is extended, uh, namely all the way to bringing us from from the status of creatures, sinful creatures indeed, redeemed sinful creatures, raised to a share in the divine life. Now, that's a deification. Uh, people often cite Athanasius. Uh, God became man so that man could become God. That's deification. But in this definition, I think Fagerberg wants to use it as as a point of arrival. Uh, you understand it better if you realize it's also connected uh, with his point of departure. Uh, liturgy is Trinitarian perichoresis. That is God. God is, I said it in, I think, in my reaction, that uh, God is Trinitarian perichoresis, this term that describes the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit among themselves. That That is what God is. So if we are going to be deified, then we come into a share in Trinitarian perichoresis. And that is, in fact, the shape of our salvation. We, uh, the, the Trinitarian perichoresis extends itself out of the Trinity toward us. It, it does that in creation, then it does it in redemption, all, uh, but it does it in the specific form of each member of the Trinity acting together but distinctly. And the Son of the, of the three 
it is the it is the son who becomes incarnate so that's that's the extension the canonic extension of the son but the father and the son are the father and the spirit are involved in that canonic extension it's the father's son given it's the spirit who is also poured out together with the son so all three are differently canoniced out all three are differently emptied out for our sake and they are emptied out to invite us into trinitarian life and uh Fagerberg uses the word invite which is an it's a it's an important word because it's it doesn't it doesn't force itself on us we can uh we can uh, we can assent to this and here i played uh with fagerberg's word to invite assent to deification I, that's a s c e n t meaning the going up to deification but since the the word assent giving my assent uh sounds like the same you can i don't think you can very easily pronounce them differently so you can say two things at once so this is assenting to assent and uh in any case uh what are you assenting to or to where are you ascending you are assenting to adoption in the place of the son so we enter the uh trinitarian perichoresis not vaguely somehow or other we enter into the place of the son by being adopted into the place of the son the spirit effects that placing of us in the place of the son in the same way that the spirit formed for the the son a a, a body in the womb of the virgin mary the spirit forms of human nature a place where the son can be son in human nature and does that so because it's it's connected with us and so we we enter the place of the son by the working of the holy spirit in order that we can turn toward the father in in the same way that the son turns toward the father and say together with the son abba father to god all that's entering perichoresis uh and how does that happen it's uh, to go back to fogerberg's language it's a synergetic ascent synergetic right? uh so that's two forces operating two energies operating the divine energy of the holy spirit and our energy with it so uh, the two energies are called synergy again by the greek tradition and uh so we uh the two energies come together place us inside the trinitarian perichoresis inside the circle dance of love we're there in the place of the son uh turn toward the father the way the son turned toward him the father is turned toward us in the way he's turned toward his son the spirit is there forming it guiding it deepening it all that all that is deification Be- uh, deification is being made god 
and, and you know that's a shocking way to put it and then you always have to explain it you don't turn into god but you're not merely a creature anymore uh so creatures have been made to share the divine nature and so the theological tradition had to find a strong and audacious expression and deification is an audacious expression but not any more audacious than God's own plan and you can't call God audacious he does what he will because he's good and wise so something like that is what deification is yeah this is something that's always kind of interested me and at the same time I kind of struggle understanding it um, in my Christian spirituality class in college the professor started class with the idea that the goal of Christian spirituality is that deification, that union with God. Um, and but like you said, you can't. You have to not misunderstand it as that we become the same thing as God, or that there's no distinction. And I guess one way to kind of explain that distinction is the same way you explain the distinction in the Trinity. They're they're one God, but they're still distinct. And of course, I'm not saying that we're one of the persons of the Trinity, but that deification kind of um, brings us, makes makes us gods in a way. Um, but I'm trying, still trying to understand how to how this works. And I, I remember there was a saint, I believe it was Saint Tres, maybe a different saint that said, "It's kind of like a river flowing into the ocean, and so all the waters are are mingled and totally united. And you couldn't distinguish them." that much but that still the molecules in the water would still be different that came from the river even though you can't can't see it so i don't know if that's a, a good analogy to explain it or not yeah it's a good analogy uh, you know uh though all the water in the ocean came from somewhere that wasn't the ocean so the, that's a that's a good way of, of, of putting it evagrius uses that same image of of the all of the all of the oceans coming into the sea and but what we're really interested in is is the, the beauty of the whole sea. But let's let's put it this way: it's a different analogy. But we're creatures; God isn't. Uh, so that's the difference, if you will, between us and God in the end. Uh, that uh, you know, there's no starting point for God. Uh, he is from from all eternity. There's a starting point for us. But our our finish point, well, we don't have one. So, uh, do you remember uh, Fogerberg was talking about uh, Benedict XVI's uh, description of eternal life? We tend to think eternal life means, oh good, it'll never end. But, but that isn't, eternal life doesn't mean everlasting life. It means God's life. Uh uh, he, I think Benedict XVI quotes John seventeen three, and this is eternal life, to know you, God, the Father, and your only Son Jesus Christ. So, divine life, eternal life, is God's life, and we share in that, not in the way that God does from all eternity. We share in that by God's opening himself up, canonically extending himself, but taking us into divine life. 
and eternal life, which has no end, and which, uh, this is Gregory of Nyssa, whom Fagerberg also cited, that we will be making infinite progress in our knowledge of God, precisely because we are creatures. God doesn't make infinite progress in knowledge of himself. That's another difference. But because we're creatures, uh, there, you know, he describes heaven as this sort of magnificent fullness that has to keep getting fuller and fuller and will never stop getting fuller. That's a creature deified, as opposed to God who doesn't get fuller and fuller. Something like that, I think, can, can help us to understand it too. So this is kind of like what perhaps the traditional way of understanding our connection with God in this way is we become by grace what God is by nature. Kind of that, that beautiful expression of our ability through God's gift, and just entirely, you know, a complete gift to be able to share in that, that life, that eternal life that you're talking about. Yeah. That's a that's a very good connection with it, Ben, in the sense of that little dictum says it all. And grace is God's own life. So we become by grace uh what God is by nature. Uh but God uh made us by nature uh and and in, in one sense, I, I suppose, had no option, but to, if he made us, we couldn't be God. But he made us in such a way that we could be, that our nature could be expanded into supernature, or that nature could be dealt with by grace to such an extent that we would be taken into a, a, a share of the divine life which uses these strong terms, deification or adoption too, which is for me a, a magnificent term, very biblical term too, of course, uh, so that we we are there in the place of the Son, vis-a-vis the Father, vis-a-vis the Spirit. If I can ask Father Abbott about something that I've seen and read as and heard as maybe a misunderstanding of deification in the way that you're describing it so let me try to unpack that and then you and then you correct me and tell me how wrong i am in understanding it that way so a version that sounds something like this and of course is a caricature but that i have i have i'm a human being i have sinful thoughts, feelings, desires. Jesus Christ is a human being, or Jesus Christ participated in human nature. Jesus Christ has a human nature, just like I have a human nature. Therefore, he too has sinful thoughts, feelings, and desires. And so deification, coming out of this premise, becomes something like growing in the understanding and in the awareness that Christ is sharing in my sinfulness, sharing in my nature as it is now. So this may be a softball question, but is that what de- deification is? 
And if not, why not? No, it isn't that. Uh, it, it, you know, you got when we're talking about stuff like this, human nature and all that, we've got to use the word human uh, nature pretty precisely. And the way that you, you use human actually in two ways there. Uh, and fair enough, because you were describing a line of thought, the way we use the word human. Uh, we say, oh, it's human to sin. And what we mean by that is human beings are in fact in a, in a, in a fallen condition. But sin is actually against human nature. So in that sense, it's not human to sin. We, we, but we say that all the time, oh, he's only human or something like that. And by which you mean, of course he sins. But that's the fallen human nature. It's not precisely what humanity was, was designed to be. Uh, nor is Christ that. So when we say that Christ shares our human nature, we're not suggesting that he's prone towards sin. Uh, because he's, he's not a fallen human being. He's a new Adam. Uh, but, uh, so th that doesn't mean he can't relate to us. Uh, he can relate to us because he shares, uh, what the, the scriptures tell that, he shares our weakness so that he can know our weakness and so that we can see that our weakness is, is, not, uh, is, is not there for us to give up on it. Oh, we're weak. Jesus was weak too. No. In fact, one moves from out of weakness into a condition uh, of strength in Christ himself. So deification is is not based on Jesus somehow, I don't know, uh, turning in the, by the, by the or use my language precisely, theologically. The second person of the Trinity in the Incarnation does not turn into a sinful human being. He, he takes on human nature, uh, and by taking it on, he is able to assume that nature and have a relationship with that nature, which in the rest of us is fallen. And his unfallen human nature, as it were, rushes in as an energy into the humanity of which we are his brothers and sisters, and, and places this divine energy inside human nature and renews sinful human nature. And that, that is effected in his own life and in his risen glorification is ceaselessly poured out in his spirit into humanity. So it's the renovation of human nature uh, at, so that that nature, which was designed for communion with God, can in fact be uh, brought to full communion with God beyond its own nature. That reminds me of, uh, especially that, that your response to Denotulate, that, that the opinion that you know, unless Jesus can relate to me, meaning unless Jesus went through this you know, inclination to sin, then what good is it to me if, if he didn't go through that, if he doesn't know what it's like? Or me, uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has this, uh, he, he talks about this briefly and he says, you know, if you're in a river 
you know, drowning, you know, are you going to, you know, and there's this fellow on the shore trying to get you out. Are you going to tell him, no, no, don't get me out because you're not in here sinking with me, you know, <laughs> unless you're in here sinking with me. I don't want to have nothing to do with you. <laughs> so it, it's kind of like the image that popped up as you were answering that. Uh, but, and I think, um, you know, we want to, and I think you kind of touched on this, maybe, maybe I'm just zoning in on it, but we also don't want to say that there's like, not like that little bit of the germ of truth in that caricature, right? Because somehow the incarnation, the fact of Jesus, the, you know, the second person of the Trinity being born of a woman yeah. and, you know, human in all things except sin, um, that somehow has kind of begun an almost unstoppable movement that ends, you know, when he ends up enthroned in heaven in his human, in that same human nature. Um, so so that there's, there's a way in which I think maybe after the resurrection, after the Paschal Mystery, we can't but look at the incarnation and the act of Jesus taking on human nature and not somehow say, already there, there's something for me that, in, that, in that action. Uh, he hasn't undergone the passion, he hasn't died, he hasn't been buried, he hasn't risen on the third day, but but there's already something momentous there, you know? Uh, yeah, the, in, the incarnation is already momentous. And uh, Greek tradition stresses that more than we do, a, a, an absolute sense of ontological awe before the, just the incarnation of God. Uh, but uh, and let's come, if I don't come back to that, let's come back to it. But I want to I want to pick up first your your connecting of the idea. There's there's a kind of truth in in what Nelson said. Or or let's not lose. We don't want to present a Jesus uh, who is without sin in such a way then that people can't identify with him, that we sinners can't identify with him and feel his sympathy with us in that. So where where do we find that in this story? And and we find it well, you find it in the in the in the way that Jesus is pictured in the Gospels, but we can cut to the chase with a very important line of Saint Paul who speaks about the whole mystery of incarnation in its relationship to sin and says that he became sin for our sake. And in another text, he became a curse for our sake. And the letter to the Hebrews, you know, that that uh, that he was not unable to sympathize with our weakness. Any number of texts will, you know, you compile them up. The point there is that Jesus experienced in his human nature our sin, but uh, he experienced them in some mysterious way that's beyond our reach. This is deep inside the mystery of God. But when St. Paul says he became sin for our sake, he, he who was rich made himself poor and became sin for our sake. That's not the same as he sinned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he knew the experience of sin. Tradition has expressed the agony in the garden as him, as it were, taking on the the knowledge in his in his human nature, taking on the experiential knowledge 
of how sin separates from God. And from within that devastating distance from God, he remains the faithful son who invokes his father. But so there's where we realize that he understands our sin without sinning. He doesn't have to be a sinner himself. He doesn't have to fall into sin himself for us to identify with him and realize that he understands our sin. He actually understands our sin more deeply than we ourselves understand it. He understands our weakness. And in fact, he experienced our weakness more deeply than we ourselves experience it. All that he bore for us and could bear for us in his human nature because he was sinless. So this is the brilliant divine design of taking one of the Trinity and having that one become flesh, become a human being, and keep on being that one that he's been from all eternity, henceforth and forever in that human nature. And that swallows up sin, devours it, ontologically undoes it, because the one who is a human being here and knowing experientially the effects of sin is also God. And that's the reverse description of deification. It's, it's, it's manification, it's incarnation by the Son so that there could be deification. That's all that was in Athanasius's God becomes man so that man can become God. It's just not, it's not a little ditty that, that that needs to be unpacked, you know. But what was the other thing I said to bring me back to? Uh, uh, I don't remember. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Just the, uh, the, 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 you said, you know, we don't have to wait until the magnificent Paschal mystery unfolds in its climax of, of death, resurrection, ascension, glorification, sending the Spirit. That the incarnation is already, uh, 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 it, it, the incarnation is already a cosmic shift. And, uh, and it's an ontological shift in, in the, in the reality of, of the, of the cosmos and in the reality of human nature. In some sense, the, you could say that is because the incarnation already has the whole Paschal mystery embedded in it uh, because it is canonic extension. But when you're, when you're God inside God, in other words, when you're Trinitarian perichoresis from all eternity, there's not before, after, and during. But if that's going to canonically extend itself in time and space, then it's going to be spread out over time and space. The canonic extension of what uh, is there in and of itself for all eternity. So when it canonically extends itself out over time, you have the creation itself, which without the creation and then the evolution, you could say, and then humanity and, and humanity's story. Uh, incarnation is needs all that as uh, as its prehistory, as its context. 
So it's all started at creation. But at incarnation, whoa, now here comes human nature and is going to start acting in history. And it's spread out over time and it climaxes uh, in the death and resurrection and ascension. But it's already somehow there in this huge way uh, in in Jesus from the, from the first moment of his incarnation, and I think I've said that to you in class before. You know that this is this is one of the perspectives from which we should always be reading the stories of Jesus's life. Uh, in one sense, knowing the end, uh, so that you that so that when you see his even just see his the story of his birth, you're already knowing where the end is going. And yet his birth remains marvelous in and of itself, precisely because of the one who was born there. That will be a um, a good bridge for when we go back to the master themes. The next one is the Paschal Mystery. So we'll, we'll come back next uh, next time and, and go right into that and extend that further. Here I want to, if I can, Father Abbott, connect what you were just saying to something you said during the... During, during your re- reaction to the community in regards to Dr. Fagerberg's talk, where you said you were talking about oftentimes our reaction to any language of sin or any talk about sin is an aversion. Don't tell me about sin and don't tell me I can't sin. And you responded to that saying, but do you know what you were made for? Do you know what, how God actually created you and what plan God actually has in store for you? Can you... Can you just go into that a little bit? Yeah, I, I don't I, I don't recall right now uh, who Fagerberg was citing, but I liked very much that uh, he said sin was expecting too little from the world, and uh, and then he went on to explain, uh, and, and that was in the context of his going through the eight evil thoughts, and so let's just take the first three evil thoughts: uh, gluttony, impurity and avarice. So uh, we think, oh, those are sinful. Well, you know, money, food, uh, money, and sex are not sinful in themselves. But if you live inside food, money, and sex in such a way that there's no reference to the beyond food, money, and sex, or put them in, in the greater context, then you've turned them into types of gods and, and and we we name that sinful, but uh, instead our vision would be: wait a minute, the world is far bigger than food, money, and sex, and so it's in that context that you can exclaim to people: Do you realize what you were made for? Uh, that that there's more to life than this, and and that this food, money, and sex, when you are in touch with the bigger context of this whole magnificent sacramental realm that the world is, then those good things of food, money, and sex find their proper place. It's not that you, oh darn, I have to do without them. Uh, But no, they find their proper place and their reference. And so I I think a good way to sum that up is... uh, that it's just it's a it's a striking definition of sin expecting too little of the world Ex- maybe to be more precise expecting 
that the world can give us nothing of God. Quite the opposite. This is this every bit of the world is God's gracious gift to us. And when we are redeemed, we are returned to the garden on earth that God placed us in for our enjoyment. Uh, and that's that's kind of the, the vision that he had and it's it's why I drew attention to it. I I, I think the the other thing that he said, I thought he put so beautifully, that uh, for the mind undergoing conversion, the world has an unexpected impact. I, I thought that was beautiful because when the mind is undergoing conversion, when you're, and he was speaking again in the context of getting over those eight evil thoughts, doing the asceticism that, that straightens us up as as human beings then what you're li- you're living in the world and in your relationship with other human beings in a, in a very pure and joyful and awestruck way that my goodness isn't it marvelous to be alive aren't human beings wonderful and beautiful isn't this food delicious isn't this lovely wine isn't the earth Amazing. Look at all the stars. On and on you go. And it's all about being adopted sons of the Father and moving in Trinitarian perichoresis already now. It's eternal life, not later, but already now, and in terms of the world. That's, that's all, that's the whole vision there, you know. Wow. <laughs> um <laughs> I wonder then if we could uh if we could say that the focus the ascetic the so, a, a focus on the ascetic life a focus on on purifying ourselves from these eight evil thoughts is not the true is not what actually is being too focused on sin. But what's actually being too focused on sin is, in a way, not caring to delve into what those eight evil thoughts are, not caring to purge our lives of them. And in that very way, by not looking at them, we're actually focused on simply living them out instead of purifying our our lives of them. And so we're actually being too focused on sin by ignoring those an attention to sin. Did, does that work at all? But you're talking about ignoring what? Uh, ignoring um, the, I don't know, kind of, kind of a a life that, the ascetic life, a, a life desiring to overcome sin in our own life, a life ordered to that, yeah. is then not, I'm twisting myself around on my words, but it's like that life, the life that you focus on the overcoming of sin is not the life that's too focused on sin because it's precisely trying to focus your life on God, whereas perhaps the life that um, that doesn't want to look at sin is unfortunately just entirely focused on it. 
Yeah. Um, I think that uh, what what I hear in that, Benjamin, is that we need to know that asceticism, uh, and he, he uses that word so we'll connect it with the ancient tradition, it's not, a, you know, asceticism isn't some sort of workout for the sake of making religion tough. It's just, it, you know, asceticism means what's required of us to get well. That's all. Asceticism is, you know, what's required of us to get well. But if we're focused in, 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 in sort of denying that we're sick, then obviously you're not going to get well. But what does getting well mean when we need to talk about what getting well is before we're well? And that's, I mean, in a sense where, where I just left off was a description of what it's, what life is like when we're well, how rich it is, how everything falls into place, how we can enjoy our existence when we're well. But if we, if we live ourselves plunged into these, into these ways of sin, uh, they, they, they turn bad on everyone sooner or later. Some people last a long time, but sooner or later, one's life, uh, goes empty because you, you just, none of those things can ultimately satisfy. So, uh, I think you need the context of asceticism as a, as a, as a, as a medicine. And you don't want to take medicine forever. Uh, you you want to develop uh, uh, enough health in your body that you'll have to take healthy measures to remain healthy. But healthy is enjoying uh, the world. And healthy is enjoying communion with God uh, in knowledge of God and, and in prayer. That's the, that's the beyond asceticism in the, in the same scheme of the, of the, of the monks that, that Flagerberg was telling us about. So I don't know if that begins to answer a little bit of what you were suggesting. Uh, Brother Israel, you had a thought when he was talking. What, what is it? Was it that obvious? Um, so if I'm, if I'm, if I heard Ben directly, um, you know, just kind of the background of this question of, of somehow saying, you know, don't worry about your sins, focus on God, because that's its primary. You know, and you don't want to say, Otherwise, you don't want to say, no, 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 forget about God. Focus on your sins. That's the problem. Um, but, you know, and, and the thought I had was, I think this is one of like the little treasures in St. Benedict that's maybe not emphasized it. He understood that, and he's, he's getting this from Cassian, he's getting this from Vagaries. He understood that true contemplation of God goes hand in hand with the ascetic endeavor. Um, that insofar as you contemplate God, there is this necessary purgation that has to happen. But in you undergoing and choosing this necessary purgation, that's already making headway in contemplation. Uh, and, you know, especially I remember in Cashin, we were going to Cashin, um, when he talks about them, you, you almost, you're like, wait, which goes first? I mean, most people would say, clearly your purgation goes first, because until you're clean, you can't, you, you cannot, you know, you cannot stand before God. But then Cash and, and Amagris does it before him, says, well, I'm not so sure about that because, uh, you know, you're, you can't tell God what to do. You can't tell him, you know, don't love me because I'm not ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what's there in, in, uh, in, in St. Benedict. That was kind of like, as, as Ben asked this question as you were responding to it, um, 
I'm not sure if that's an answer or just like a comment, but um, it, it'd be wrong to, to put those two so separate because, you know, you cannot focus so totally on God without immediately recognizing that you're a sinner. I mean, that's, that's part of what standing before God has to look like for us, uh, unfortunately, but, but also luckily, because then, as you mentioned, well, that's the diagnosis. Then we can start getting healthy. Um, but I think maybe Ben's point is that, you know, you can't just stand before God and say, no, no, I'm doing great. Uh, you know, I'm already healthy because I'm looking at God. Then your body's falling apart because of sin. Um, so I think there can be that danger of kind of, uh, of wanting to say Jesus has done it all. And, and you already mentioned this earlier today. The sacrifice is, there's one sacrifice, it has been offered, and it was perfect. Um, and, uh, you know, Abbey Gregory, when he presents the Holy Rule, one thing he just constantly talks about is you have to want what Jesus did for you. Um, he did it, and it's beautiful. You have to want it. That's why you, yeah, that's why you enter the monastery. That's why you insert vocation. So unless you have those two together, there's no there, that's synergy, you know. The, 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 uh, Dr. Fagerberg talked about two forces of unequal strength, but both necessary. Um, so I think that's maybe part of what's wrong with the outlook of focusing so much on God and somehow saying, "Oh, there's this sinfulness in me," but we ignore that because we can look at God, and that's enough. But then that denies the fact that. What's offered to us is that cooperation. Yeah. Working together. The I just want to. That's just well said, and I I would just want to underline the point of let's not think of these different things like asceticism and contemplation after we're purified as things that happen only chronologically. And you said it. You know, already we're involved in all of it and all our life long we'll be struggling with the eight evil thoughts mm-hmm. uh, so it's not like first I get pure then I start praying and enjoying the world these you know these are ways of talking about neat and tidy ways of talking about what is all entangled and messed up in us but it's it's messed up not in not in a bad sense just like all entangled Life is like that. These are dimensions of life. And, you know, the eight evil thoughts, uh, Fagerberg mentioned that they fit on to, uh, they were developed by Evagrius in relationship to the uh, tripart division, the three parts of the soul in Platonic philosophy, uh, the concupiscible, the irascible, and the intellectual parts of the soul. Those three parts of our life become healthy even while sick so you know there's there's a there's a good way in which our desiring part doesn't just desire wrongly it also desires correctly on the same day there's a way in which our irascible part gets angry and mad or also is the energy with which we love on the same day and there's a way in which our intellectual part is filled with 
lies and enjoying them and on the same day filled with truth and living out of that. Not because uh, we're fake or something. It's just life is like this. And we, as we advance on the, on the way of holiness, slowly but surely, uh, we get healthier and healthier. But it's wonderful to think that uh, we're able to describe holiness with this word healthy and meaning by that healthy human beings, really healthy human beings. And that's its attraction. Maybe going back to that too, Ben, you know, in a sense, virtue in, uh, when it's understood like this or being free from the evil thoughts is really attractive. It produces attractive people and it makes your own life attractive to yourself. So that's part of the that's part of the the glory of it too, is that people are happy when they live this way, when they live according to this nature and to this redeemed nature. Part part of your point, Ben, was also you were, you were moving towards saying that it's that attitude that wants to say, focus on God, don't worry so much about your sinfulness actually being an example of how you're too focused on your sin. Uh, kind of an initial reaction to that would be to say it's 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 living living a lie. It's 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 kind of denying maybe a part of you as you're standing before God and then choosing to overlook it. Um, so I, I don't know if that maybe corresponds to that being actually just kind of too focused on sin, uh, or being just another expression of how you're sinful. Sure, that uh, that definitely plays a big part of it. I think I was just trying to investigate where we go wrong, you know, especially when we're trying to lean to one side, you know, which which often happens, I think, in our lives. <laughs> So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was just thinking how we're talking about looking to God and as, you know, kind of our savior from sin, but also looking at sin. And you can't ignore both of them because as Brother Israel is pointing out, we have to both accept that salvation from God and from our core sins, but we also have to realize that it comes from God, that that is a, that is a salvation. Um, and I guess what I, I kind of want to bring up is a good definition, or, or not a definition, but an explanation of not falling into that worldliness and sin is what you said in the in the uh, the conference talk about worldliness is taking world with is taking the world without God, um, and so that's only focusing on the world, and that's that's what sin and worldliness is. But then you're also talking about how important and how, how good the world is and how good nature is. And so that, that shows us that we can't just focus on God, but that we also have to focus uh, or realize how good nature is, how good we are as well. And so I guess they kind of tie together. Um, and another definition of this worldliness, uh, or not another definition, but what this made me think about is a book we're reading in class by uh, Father Canto La Mesa, and he 
he defined it a little bit differently, but he said worldliness is taking the world without eternity, um, which is kind of the same thing. God is is eternity, but um, I guess that kind of makes me come to think of deification because that's part of that um, goal of deification is that eternal life with God. And so, I don't know, um, those are just some thoughts and comments that came up for me is that it becomes worldliness and sin if you only focus on the world. But then you also, when you're focusing on God, you can't forget the goodness of nature in the world. Yeah. Uh, he, he, I thought it was great the way he used, uh, the Plato thing, you know, the Plato and the, and the myth of the shadows. Plato was right about the shadows, uh, but he didn't take it far enough. Do you remember that? And that when you turn toward the sun and see what's casting the shadows, uh, that's great. That's, that's truth compared to the shadow world. But, that there are shadows even becomes fascinating once you know what's casting the shadows. And that was sort of a nice, a nice play on, on the two of the things. But one of the, one of the ways in which I think we can recover a sense of the, the beauty of the world as it is. And I do this every year is during the Easter vigil. Uh, but it's a, it's a clue to do it, uh, more often than that. But when you hear the creation account inside the Easter Vigil, you're, what, the whole world is renewed by Christ's resurrection. And so you can look at each day and what God makes on each day, which through the six days is the whole world. And as Christians, we should be deep inside those first two chapters of Genesis before the fall, but reading them in the light of Christ and redemption, because all that is given back to us. Uh, but as the Exultet says, it's not just creation restored, but it, we're, the redemption takes us beyond creation. And so, you know, oh, happy fault, or I like to translate that more vividly, Thank God Adam sinned. Otherwise, we would have never had this much redemption, you know. And so, so that the, the beauty of creation restored is great. But you go, thank God Adam sinned because then we got deification, which was God's response to that. Uh, so that's looking at the world and looking at the world in reference to God. Can I try a, a sports analogy? Uh-huh. So the, you know, a boy growing up playing a sport, let's say playing the greatest sport in the world, soccer. Boy's growing up, he's starting to watch it on TV, watch tournaments. He's really starting to get captivated by it. He's kicking the ball with his dad. Now he starts to play with his, with his friends. He's getting more and more involved. He's getting, he's finding communion within that. He's grown up. He's noticing that he's getting better at playing the sport. Now he's eight, nine. Maybe he's in a little team. He's competing a little bit and he sees the joys of winning. He sees the, the sadness of losing. Now he's 10, 11. Now a coach tells him that he, that practice isn't just about going out to the field and playing the game. That now he has to start running sprints 
and he has to start doing drills and he has to start using both legs. Then he becomes 13, 14. Now he start, has started lifting weights if he wants to keep improving in this, in this sport. And then he has to start eating better and he has to start cutting things off from his diet. Then he's 15, 16. Now he sees some of his peers start doing things that are opposed to getting better at the sport. And he has to choose to say, no, if I'm going to continue to get better at this and to enjoy more fully, I'm going to have to say no to these other things. If he chose to say, I'm not going to do those things because I want to just focus on the game, he would be shorting both his improvement and his enjoyment. On the other hand, if he chooses to go through the ascetic practices of playing the game, that, that are part of playing the game, that are part of living in the game, then he continues to grow. Yeah. Nelson, that's the way uh, the monks of old uh, described asceticism when they were first articulating it. All their analogies were with athletics. Mm. And, uh, it, but I mean, just the way you tell it there, it makes it pretty clear. Mm. So, for the sake of the game, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we've got to, we've got to follow the coach mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and his advice. But yeah, no, that's the way asceticism actually, before it was a religious word, uh, was a, was a word from, from Greek, uh, Mm. Greek sports. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's what yeah. the athlete needed. Right. So and that's, we, we borrowed the word from sports. And so that becomes a paradox, right? It's by saying, so let's say that 15, 16 year old, if, if he were to say, I'm not going to focus on these ascetic practices so that I can just focus on the game, he's doing what Ben is saying that. He's not focusing on the game, he's focusing on himself. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next time when we move on to our next topic. Brother, what's the next topic? Our next topic is the next master theme, the Paschal Mystery. Three episodes lined up already. Very excited to share this with all of you. So get in touch with us. The website is theologyatmtangel.com. Send us an email, theologyatmtangel.edu. And don't forget to sign up for the newsletter. Go on the website and just punch in your email address and we'll send it out to you once a week. blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen.